From WPVM LP in Asheville, this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Lexi Harvey. And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this, and I can't believe I get to say this, is the latest from Sparkle Horse. Yeah. 
what is your most controversial hot take when it comes to food? Everybody's got one. It should be expected that everyone has their own opinion because, let's face it, the alternative would be tyranny. But an unscrutinized opinion can be just as dangerous. The sad reality is that all too often, our opinions are based on assumptions and not reality. Gather enough of those faulty opinions to make a consensus, and suddenly, it's a whole different kind of oppression. It becomes an even bigger problem when those opinions are about some other culture. Maybe it's a practice that they have, the music that they listen to, something they drink, something they eat. As humans, we have a pretty awful track record of shaming strangers and foreigners for the parts of their culture we find unusual. But again, gather a large enough consensus and it can have global ramifications. This month, we're dedicating the whole hour to a story about how a single letter penned in the late 1960s shifted the entire Western world's opinion on a staple ingredient, and how, 60 years later, we're finding out just how wrong we were. Here's John with that story. There are always myths in our food systems, both good and bad. One generation's fear of fat leads to a decade of flavorless food, while for the next, it's the maligned carbohydrate. Then everyone is eating avocados or acai, but no one will consume sugar. And while these food trends and demonizations may happen more and more often, they are nothing new. Potatoes were known as the lazy root and supposedly turned the Irish into slothful fornicators. Following the publishing of Paradise Lost in the 1600s, apples became the forbidden fruit. Nearly every religion has something that believers are not supposed to eat or drink. And in any era of mass immigration, those immigrants' foods are always looked down upon as being strange, gross, dirty, or cruel. Often these myths are built upon superstition, and these days we like to think we've grown beyond that and achieved some kind of scientific diet, like we've outgrown such petty beliefs. But all this talk of superfoods and just one glimpse of a Goop or David Avocado Wolf video on YouTube makes it abundantly clear that we haven't grown at all. And that maybe our common knowledge of science grows just as slowly as it did back in the days of Galileo. And even worse, perhaps our prejudices about what we like to eat are tied even closer to our racial prejudices than we would like to think. Of the many toxic food myths still thriving in our cultural broth in this country these days, perhaps the most bizarrely unfounded and specious is our aversion to monosodium glutamate. What do you know about MSG? For most of us living in America, we know the name, but that's about it. In fact, until a few years ago, I didn't know much more about it than the fact that most of the foods that I consumed bragged that they did not contain it, with big capital letters declaring no MSG on nearly every packaged food in the grocery store. The similarity to labels of no RBGH or no trans fats should lead one to believe that MSG has something in common with those other maligned and unhealthy ingredients, but one would be wrong to think so. In fact, the truth is far from what the average consumer might think. My perceptions of MSG were shifted quite abruptly. I was working on recipes for an article, and a chef friend of mine, who just happened to be Japanese, suggested the use of MSG. When I protested, he shook his head and just said, That's some racist bullshit, man. I wish I could bring Chef Robert here to speak to us about it today, but sadly, he passed a couple years ago. So instead, we're going to have to talk to someone who was also abruptly corrected on his false notions of MSG. Christopher Ketke has been working in kitchens since he was 14 years old. He's worked in fine dining throughout France, Switzerland, and the U.S., and was previously the host of the Live Well Network show, Let's Dish. But perhaps most importantly, he was a culinary instructor for more than 20 years at Kendall College and Laureate International University. 
I was teaching a course in charcuterie at the time. And I was giving a lecture before you know we got cooking on what are the ingredients we're not going to use in our meat systems. And I was going through this, this laundry list and I said, you know, MSG. And a Filipino student in my class kind of caught my eye. And, I, and I, I could see from the expression on her face that I had said something, but whatever. And end of class, she comes up to me and she says, chef, what's wrong with MSG? And I, and this is where, this is where I'm not proud. Right. I'm like, well, um, you know, it's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's again for you. I, I really didn't have an answer, but I was doing what everybody else was doing, which was simply repeating what, you know, everyone was saying, uh, talk about bad education. That's a perfect example. But, but then what happens is, is she says, you know, chef, my mother had it every day in the kitchen. And I'm like, really? You know, because I'm thinking this is like really bad stuff, right? And then she says, chef, have you ever tried it on eggs? And I was like, the only thing I did right is I was like, I don't know, let's try it. So she made eggs for me with scrambled eggs with uh, with MSG, salt and pepper. And, and I kid you not, it was a moment in my culinary career when it was like, wait a minute, what is going on? This is the best egg I have ever tasted. And, and that got me really kind of questioning, like, maybe, maybe I don't understand this fully. And the more digging I did into it, I discovered what many people are talking about today, which is it's, it's a big myth. It's a big lie. And in fact, it is, it is so powerful in the food that we cook. So what exactly is MSG? For that, we turn to Dr. Tia Rains. So MSG stands for monosodium glutamate. And what that means is that there's one sodium, so mono being one, and then glutamate. And what glutamate is, is an amino acid. So we are made up of amino acids. Proteins are strings of these amino acids attached together. And so glutamate is just one of these 20 amino acids that make up protein. And it's Proteins not only within us as humans, so about 4% of our body weight right now as we all sit or stand here is glutamate. Uh, It's also the same in animals and in plants. So glutamate is found all throughout nature. Dr. Rains is quite familiar with the uphill battle of correcting the public's errant opinions about food. Remember in the 90s when everyone was convinced that eggs were high in cholesterol and were bad for you? Well, before she dedicated her career to talking about MSG, she was the executive director of the Egg Nutrition Center, where she worked to correct that bizarre notion. So when I started the American Egg Board, eggs were bad. People thought that they caused heart disease. And then when I left the Egg Board, the dietary guidelines for Americans had changed and had acknowledged that eggs could be part of a healthy diet, and that, in fact, Not only can they be part of a healthy diet, but there's different nutrients within eggs that are really important to things like brain health and uh, a developing brain during pregnancy and early childhood development, as well as brain health over the course of the lifespan. So I was able to take my learnings from working with eggs and apply a lot of them to helping people understand the facts about MSG. Both Dr. Rains and Chef Ketke have shifted their entire careers to work towards MSG awareness. They both work for Ajinomoto now, the inventors of MSG. 
I think one of the other big misunderstandings about MSG is that it is some modern chemical developed by some Monsanto-like corporation. But oddly enough, in this case, MSG predates Ajinomoto and is the reason why the company was founded in the first place. In the late 1800s to the early 1900s, Japan was in the process of a major transition. Known as the Meiji Restoration, the nation, which had been closed off from the rest of the world for centuries, began a rapid process of modernization. Adapting both their city infrastructures, education systems, and military, it was a period of insanely fast growth. It was also a period that found the nation embroiled in two wars, the Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War barely a decade later. That second war ended at a time when Japan's food systems were being seriously put to the test as the northern breadbasket of the nation was struck by a famine in 1905. Kukune Ikeda was a chemistry professor at Tokyo Imperial University and was one of many scientists and activists all over the nation that were trying to figure out new ways to feed people. They had a, a large proportion of the population that was malnourished and they needed to improve the overall health of their diet. And he had an interest in this. And his idea was to be able to identify what the savory taste was that he had tasted in different foods, and then to bottle that up as a seasoning and bring it to the Japanese people as a way to help them eat more healthy foods. So the way he did that is he found that the, the strongest taste of that savory was in his wife's seaweed soup. And so he essentially dehydrated his wife's seaweed soup, uh, looked at what was left in those crystals that were left behind, and he found that the predominant crystal in there was the amino acid glutamate. So he took that glutamate and he tried to match it up with a couple of different compounds to turn it into a salt. So much like we have sodium chloride, he knew that he wanted to pair up the glutamate with something else so that it would make a nice salt to be used as a seasoning. And so he paired it up with calcium, he paired it up with potassium, he paired it up with an ammonium item, ion, excuse me. But he found that the, the best version was when he paired up the glutamate with a sodium ion. And that's because it became very soluble in water. Uh, it was easy to make a nice crystal out of it. And then it tasted the best. It had the most savory taste. And so he coined that savory taste umami, which means deliciousness. And then he partnered with a local businessman in Japan to bottle that up and bring that to the Japanese market. In 1908, Kakune Akeda extracted glutamic acid from kombu. By 1909, he and Saburo Suzuki founded the company Ajinomoto, which literally translates as the essence of taste. In Japan, it was bottled into what looked like a perfume bottle early on, because then uh, people would display it on their tabletop or on their counters, and it would look nice. Uh, and again, it was just used, much like we use salt here, it was used as a seasoning over there just to make foods taste better. Uh, and, and no one cared about it globally. It, it made its way around the globe. Um, you know, the company Ajinomoto showed up in the U.S. in 1917. Uh, there was MSG in the food supply prominently in like the 1930s, 1940s. Uh, it was really appreciated by the U.S. military because it made food rations taste better. 
And in fact, the military invested heavily in understanding what foods you could add MSG to, to make them taste more delicious because they saw it as a easy solution to improve the taste of these military rations that were being sent all over the world. Uh, again, this is around World War II timeframe and people, people loved MSG. They had no, no one was reporting any of these issues that I hear about on the day-to-day. MSG became a prominent part of the American diet. It was so common that it became a primary ingredient in baby food. So as I mentioned, MSG was sold without issue for decades around the world. And in fact, back at that time frame in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the U.S. was the third largest consumer of MSG in the world. None of these issues. What changed was in 1968, and that's when a Chinese-American physician wrote a letter to the editor at the New England Journal of Medicine. And as it is today, back then, the New England Journal of Medicine, very prominent medical journal. And again, to this day, medical journals have a part in the back of the journal where as a a reader, you could submit letters just to raise some ideas. And so that's what this physician did. And what he wanted to raise the idea of is that he noticed when he was having Chinese food within the U.S. compared to when he was having it from his native country, that he was sometimes experiencing some symptoms, such as a pressure in the chest and numbness in the arms. And he wasn't quite sure why that would be happening. And in this letter, he says, it could be there's more sodium used and more salt used in the the food that's made here, Chinese food made here. It could be cooking wine, excessive levels of cooking wine, or it could be excessive levels of monosodium glutamate. And at the end of the letter, he says, if anyone has any ideas on why this may be, or if anyone has noticed a similar similar uh, effect, I'd be curious to know, because he was a practicing physician and not a researcher. The editors of that journal titled the letter Chinese Restaurant Syndrome. So that was not an actual clinical manifestation of a disease or a condition. It was a made-up phrase that some savvy editors at the journal came up with that landed on top of that letter. It was almost like a punchline. It was a punchline, yes. And unfortunately at the time, if you think back, much like we saw early on in the COVID days, you often get this very unfortunate xenophobia towards Asians when there are certain events that are happening. And at the time, that was when um, the Vietnam War, you had a lot going on there and a lot of just angst around that within this country. Chinese food restaurants in general tended to be Uh, less expensive, you know, strip mall types of of restaurants. Uh, They seem to serve food maybe that seemed very foreign to the type of food we were eating. And so it was really easy for people to kind of jump on this bandwagon of Chinese food makes you sick or causes these symptoms. And the chemical sounding name MSG must be related to those symptoms. So it was this kind of confluence of events that happened that had people negatively starting to perceive MSG and Chinese food restaurants and linking the two together. And then some scientists started to take the call to action from that physician's letter and inject 
And when I say inject, I mean actually inject very large doses of MSG into the brains, into the abdomens, under the skin of laboratory rodents. And whenever you inject a high dose of anything into any living thing, but in this case, these were mice and sometimes rats, it made them very sick. You can do the same thing with water or air or caffeine or any substance, but I think the the collection of, of things all happening together really made that kind of cement this negativity towards MSG and people thought it was really harmful and it caused a lot of concern within the U.S. at that time. Uh, it, there were the government got involved and because it would had been used in baby food up until that point and mandated the removal from baby food. And then I think to stay afloat, many of these restaurants had no choice but to start putting that signage up that said, we don't use MSG or no MSG. And then that further perpetuated this negativity around the ingredient because consumers were then seeing that messaging when they were going out to eat or even just driving by a Chinese food restaurant. Yeah, it almost became a command. You know? Ab- absolutely, absolutely. Huh, no MSG, yeah. So when they were doing, like that study that you referenced earlier of where they were injecting the, the rats, um, how, was this affecting other countries or was this just affecting the US? So those studies certainly reverberated throughout the world. And you see very often that news that starts in the US very quickly starts to move its way around the world. And so it it did happen that that negativity towards MSG spread to other countries, especially Europe. They're, and they still harbor this sort of uh, you know, negative feeling towards MSG. There's other parts of the world that were, that did not change their perception to negative around MSG because it was such a important part of their food culture. So sometimes at an airport, I'll meet somebody from a country within South America that loves MSG and just doesn't even understand why they can't find it as easily in the U.S. as they do at home. And certainly parts of Asia that still uh, have it as a pantry staple. Uh, But that negativity did change the perception globally. You know, the other thing I should mention is that on the heels of of all of that confluence of of societal as well as science coming together that kind of cemented this negativity there there were lots and lots of different actual randomized controlled trials that were conducted on MSG to try to see if there was anything there and see if it could replicate any of those findings from the animal studies and time and time again and it didn't matter who did the study uh, MSG is not associated with any of those symptoms that that letter originally laid out. And it's certainly not associated with anything that's harmful. Now, that said, I hear all the time people want to tell me about how MSG causes them to have allergy symptoms or a headache or all of these different things. And my response to that is, well, you know, the, the randomized controlled trials did not show that. So you could be an outlier. It's very possible. People are people. Everybody's different. Uh, We know now more than ever that uh, nutrition, you know, the relationship between food and health is individual. So it's quite possible, but it's also quite possible if you're 
expressing symptoms of an allergy after you eat at a particular restaurant, that you actually have a food allergy. That's not <laughs> MSG. And you should probably figure out what that is because that is something that, you know, you, you might be misguided to think it's MSG when you have a true allergy to something else that should be discovered. Yeah, it could be peanut oil. It could be anything that was else yeah. that was in the, in the meal. Absolutely. Anything. And those are serious and there's allergies can worsen as you get older. And so I, I always want to send that message that if it's something that you, and then the, my line of questioning is usually, oh, you don't feel well after you eat at a Chinese food restaurant. How about when you have, um, do you ever eat ranch dressing? Do you have any issue with ranch dressing? No, not ranch dressing. What about like Doritos or Cheetos or Campbell's soup? Like, do you have any issues with that? No, I'm fine after all of that. And that's when I say, you know what? It can't be the MSG then because there's actually MSG in those foods. Also, there's naturally or inherently present MSG within other foods. So tomatoes are very high in glutamate. Mushrooms, very high. Parmesan cheese is very high. Well, there you have it. If you're not allergic to mushrooms, Parmesan cheese, or tomatoes, you're not likely to be allergic to MSG. Who knew? You're listening to the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour and our deep dive on the long maligned and misunderstood ingredient, monosodium glutamate. John will be back with more of the story after this.
This is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. When we last left off, John was taking a look at the history of MSG. Here he is with the rest of that story. I think it's important to give a little context to the history of Chinese food in America at this point. Chinese food first landed in this country in the 1840s, when migrant workers traveled from China to work in California during the gold rush. At one point, Chinese migrants made up 30% of the population of California, and for nearly three decades, the majority of Chinese migrants in the country were contained to that state, which created a whole industry for Chinese-speaking entrepreneurs. But if centuries of global migrations have taught us anything, it is that majority populations fear a rise in minorities. And by 1871, the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, banning Chinese immigrants and limiting the work that existing migrants could perform to running restaurants and laundromats. There was a glaring loophole in this legislation, however. It said that migrants running laundromats or restaurants would be allowed to immigrate family members to help with those businesses. Seemingly overnight, immigration associations began organizing. Rather than have all of the migrants stay in the same communities and compete with each other, they began assigning them cities all across the country where they could open restaurants and laundromats in places where they were lacking. Within a decade, there were Chinese restaurants in nearly every city in the U.S., and those 70,000 migrants split up and spread across the map in what would be one of the largest immigration diasporas in American history one that opened the door for even more Chinese migrants to move to the country. Chinese food gained a particular popularity among cosmopolitans in the 1920s who found it exotic, but that popularity would wax and wane over the years, particularly following World War II. By the time Dr. Homan Kwok wrote his letter to the New England Journal of Medicine in 1968, there was already a burgeoning stigma against Chinese food, despite the fact that it had been on these shores and ingrained in our communities for nearly 80 years longer than Italian or Greek food. It's so interesting because, I mean, Chinese food has been in this country longer than Italian food. And it's still this, you know, isolated to this little pocket of culture. And... I think a lot of that is because the ingredients still feel foreign to American appetites, even though it's been on this land longer than the tomato has. But (laughs) it's just so strange to me. Right. Actually, I don't know if you know Dan Pashman does the spoonful. He and I—he's the best person to talk about this. But he'll—he goes into how how the first immigrants showed up in the U.S. in terms of the food culture, and that sort of has painted our our perception of that food culture. So, like, for example, French food, we all associate with being very high-end, very expensive, because that's how French restaurants showed up first in the U.S. Right. Mexican food, it was more kind of the street food culture that showed up in the U.S., and so we associate as Americans Mexican food to be kind of that cheaper sort of version whereas you know mexican cuisine is all over the map i mean it's yeah yeah and and it and dan would say the same thing with chinese food that the first restaurants that showed up here tended to be the cheaper uh you know sort of strip mall types of restaurants and so that's our perception has always been it's lower quality somehow and unfortunately now if you fast forward those perceptions are still there but where, where we're seeing it more is in this idea of clean eating, whereas people have defined now this concept of clean eating to basically be, you know, like 
Northern European eating is clean eating. And then everything else, especially Asian, is somehow not clean. So it just has manifested in a different way all these years later. And to your point, it just continues to be perpetuated for whatever reason in our country. Yeah, food from the places where the white people are is okay, but everything else is must must be dirty, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. It's like, it's not even dog whistle. It's just outright <laughs> racism in, in its... Yeah in the way it develops. Yeah, it's astounding. At this point, you may be thinking, but John, isn't MSG still a manufactured food product with a chemical name? How can it possibly be healthy? Well, don't worry. Dr. Tia Raines has some thoughts on that, too. Don't mind the blippy computer sounds in the background. There was something buzzing over our conversation when this was recorded. MSG, even though it has a chemical-sounding name, it's not that different than sodium chloride, which is salt. Now, unfortunately, when the seasoning made its way into our regulatory framework for food, it got entered as monosodium glutamate and not a common name. So I think, unfortunately, that is always going to be a challenge with a lot of people because they hear it. It sounds like a chemical, but everything has a chemical name. We just, over time, have dropped the chemical names in favor of something else because that's what makes us feel comfortable as Americans. So... It will always be called MSG, but that's nothing to fear just because it sounds like a chemical. Again, water has a chemical name, and there's been a whole campaign around that kind of as a joke uh, just to help educate people about science. MSG is actually made by fermentation, and it comes from plants. So in the U.S., we make MSG in Iowa, and it comes from corn. In other parts of the world, MSG is made from local crops. So, for example, sugarcane in South America or cassava in Asia. And it's just made through fermentation. It's the same type of process that beer is made, that yogurt is made, uh, that anything that is fermented is produced. So it's plant-based if you want to use a trendy term, and it does um, come from a fermentation reaction. And then maybe the last thing I'll say is that we've tried very hard over time to help exonerate the negative stigma of this ingredient and do it in a way that hopefully gets people to think about why we have this negativity towards it in the first place. And so, for example, one of our our first efforts was to challenge the definition of Chinese restaurant syndrome within Merriam-Webster's dictionary. So they had a definition that was false. Uh, That was uh, just perpetuating these stereotypes against Asian cuisine, Chinese cuisine in particular, and MSG. And so uh, we had a redefine Chinese restaurant syndrome campaign to try to raise awareness about the inaccuracies, but also just the xenophobia that is tied into that definition. And we're successful in uh, encouraging Merriam-Webster's to update their definition. Another common myth about MSG is that it is high in sodium. This is an understandable misconception since sodium is in the name, but unlike sodium chloride, monosodium glutamate contains a fraction of the sodium that salt contains. It only has 12% sodium within that container. So it's low in salt. Um, It's mostly glutamate. And because it's a basic taste, much like salt is a basic taste, there's this interaction within 
the mouth that uh, allows you to the umami, you know, increasing the umami and the savory can help you not miss the lack of salt. So in some cases, you can reduce the salt in a dish by 30 to 60 percent. So it's very effective. And unfortunately, it doesn't get used as much in the food supply because of the negative stigma. And we're at a place now in the U.S., and this is a global issue as well, but in the U.S., nine out of 10 people consume more sodium than what's healthy. And so by using MSG, it's not going to solve the entire sodium issue, but it is going to help and contribute to helping Americans reduce salt in their diets without compromising on taste. And that's the the best thing you can do from a nutrition perspective, if I put my nutrition hat on here, you know, we want people to enjoy their food and we want to encourage them to enjoy the foods that we know make people healthy. And by managing sodium, by increasing umami, that seems to be one tool that we can be using to kind of help people down that path. Chef Ketke agrees that salt and MSG misconception is a hard one to break. There is a lot of confusion around the role of salt and MSG. The two are not the same. I mean, there is this, you know, sodium that's shared, but MSG has a third less sodium than does table salt. And I think that there is that level of confusion. But when you explain to somebody that salt has its own taste receptors in your palate and umami has its own taste receptors in the palate, they do two different things, which means when you season food, you season with salt and MSG because it's exciting two different taste receptors. Some people say to me, can I just cook with MSG then? And I'm like, well, you can, but the problem is then your salt receptors are kind of saying, hey, hey, what about me? Did you forget about us? So it's really creating balance. And I'll also say that there's this whole, you know, ability to use MSG to lower sodium. And that is something I did a bunch of work on a number of years ago. I never thought it was possible until I did it. And it is so good because when you take salt out of food, you know, that it, it, it's less interesting. But when you backfill that with umami, all of a sudden your mouth just has this richness of flavor. And in fact, if you, you know, if you pull out like half the, you know, I should say, if you replace half the salt with MSG, do a 50-50 mix, you've reduced sodium by 40%. And the really interesting thing is when you sprinkle that on food, the food tastes amazing. It's, it's a great tool for anybody who's thinking, I need to back the sodium down in my diet. I think it's worth pointing out that in the wake of that letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, more and more food companies felt pressured to remove MSG from their products over the years. In packaged foods, this often greatly affected their flavors, stripping that savory taste from the foods where people had come to expect it. So how does one compensate for lack of umami? If they are trying to cut costs, they just add salt. And what does that do once those exported foods start landing in communities and cultures that don't have as much access to fresh foods and rely on those packaged products for their diet? Heart disease begins to rise. But beyond those global issues, MSG is a great ingredient to utilize when it comes to cooking at home. But I'm sure a question that most of you might be asking now is, well, just how the hell do I use it? You know, what I recommend to people at home? 
just just try stuff. Put it on stuff. Put it on salmon. Put it on steak. Put it on eggs. Put it on vegetables, Brussels sprouts, you know, cabbage. Because umami has a Japanese name, you know, again, it was discovered by a Japanese scientist, Dr. Ikeda. There is this, this myth out there, another myth around MSG, which is that it's all about Asian food. You put MSG into Asian food uh, and that, you know, you experience umami in Asian food. And nothing is further than the truth because we see examples of umami-rich foods all over the world. And in fact, adding MSG to you know, a steakhouse menu, adding it to Italian food, to French food, adding it into a classical French Bordelais transforms it into something really, really fabulous. Back in the fall, I hosted a Day of the Dead pop-up at a local cidery called Barn Door Cider Works. We decided that we wanted all of the courses to be vegetarian, since it's a fairly rare treat for veg heads to receive a multi-course meal in our meat-centric culinary world. I wanted to make pozole to stick with the traditional foods of the holiday, but if you've ever had it, you know that the bulk of that soup's flavor comes from chicken broth and a ton of shredded chicken. I substituted mushrooms as the protein, and even used dried mushrooms to try to bolster the stock, but despite their concentrated umami, it was still lacking something. I was hesitant to add more salt, but I decided to reach for a secret ingredient in the back of my cabinet, a jar of MSG. And I think that is the best way I know to describe what MSG does to a dish. It doesn't make it salty, it doesn't make it spicy, it just provides body. It's almost like it embellishes the flavors that are already there. And just seeing what it did to that mushroom and hominy soup made me wonder what else it could spruce up. You know, just to throw out some some ideas here, because, you know, as a starting point, number one, anything plant-based, like I said, but it really, I personally, this is just me personally, I love the role that MSG plays with cruciferous vegetables. I think it's absolutely amazing. I think it's amazing when you cook uh, a steak, a piece of salmon, anything that's sautéed or grilled, you season with salt and pepper, you season with MSG too. And you can put a bunch of MSG on. It's amazing what it does. And then lastly is what it does with cheese. So anytime you're making like a cheese sauce kind of thing, that little bit of MSG really bumps up the, the cheesiness of that and makes it that much deeper. As I mentioned in the beginning, this isn't the first time we've seen a reversal on a maligned ingredient in the food world. Butter and lard were once slandered as margarine was offered as an alternative, but in the end, society reversed that opinion. And we already mentioned Dr. Rain's work on the incredible edible egg. But the human mind is such a hefty and slow-moving beast, it must be such a burden to reverse this kind of whale. So this is where my head goes. If you had asked me this 10 years ago, even maybe five years ago, I would have been like, whew, this is going to be one long uphill battle. I actually think we're getting to the point where it's like a seesaw and it's starting to tip. And I truly believe that in the next few years, you're going to see that seesaw do a, a, you know, all of a sudden the momentum is going to change. So I... Yes, I do foresee a time in the not too distant future when people say, look, we don't believe in myths, we believe in facts. And we also believe that, well, I should say, once you know the facts, then we know what MSG can do in food and why aren't we using it? And, and it is changing. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I see the statistics, but I also, 
you know, this is just in my daily, you know, talking with people. Uh, it used to be that the minute I would say MSG, oh, I would get, I would get a, you know, people, all, all kinds of things I would hear. Now I'm not. And by and large, people are like, you know, yeah, no problem. Oh yeah, we used to believe that, but now we, we understand it's good for you. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's funny because when I think about why that day in the classroom, I said, we're not using it. Um, I, I didn't really have a reason. It was just, it was one of those myths, as many myths are, that kind of get handed down. And you just don't question it. It's like, yeah, it's, it's there's something bad about it. I mean, some people say they get headaches, some people say heart palpitations, some people, but it was, it was this sense that you just don't use it. And I think the other thing today that I sense from chefs is that they don't, it's, it's almost like they're cheating, <laughs> you know? They'll be like, you know, I, I love umami, but I, 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 but I won't use MSG. Like somehow that's a badge of honor. And I do a lot of, you know, education of chefs. And the next question I ask them is, okay, if we follow that reasoning, because umami, MSG, MSG is pure umami, is one of your basic tastes. And salt is one of your basic tastes. And so if we follow that analogy, then I say to the chefs, okay, I'll tell you what, let's take your salt out of the kitchen also. And you can use salty ingredients, but you can't use salt because that's cheating. And immediately they're like, what, what, no, no, you can't, you can't take salt out. What happens when we put salt in a recipe? It adds salinity, pure 100% salinity. What happens when we put in MSG? We add pure umami without other flavors. So it is a very, very strong tool. But when I explain this to chefs, you see the light bulb go on and they're like, wait a minute. Oh yeah, I never thought about it that way. That was John talking with Agina Motos, Chris Ketke, and Dr. Tia Rains. To find the text of the full story, be sure to visit our webpage, dirty-spoon.com.
The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is made possible by our underwriter, The Marketplace Restaurant. Serving Asheville for over 40 years, The Marketplace is Asheville's original farm-to-table restaurant. The Marketplace strives to bring you the best of what our region has to offer, farmed by our neighbors. For more information on our underwriters or to support us yourself by subscribing to our Patreon, visit dirty-spoon.com. The Dirty Spoon Radio Hour is a production of Dirty Spoon Media. All of the text from our stories is available on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com. There, you can also catch up on past episodes as well as subscribe to our show and help keep us going through our Patreon. The incredible artwork on our page is by Corinne Pease, Katrin Dosa, Ashley Icomedes, Kelly Manier, Garnet Fisher... Paul Choi, Marianne Papineau, Claire Winkler, and Alex Knighton. Music in this episode by Sparkle Horse, Dolora Forever, Meja, Men I Trust, Castle Beat, and Nia Archives. Lexi Harvey is our editor-at-large, sources our stories, and handles our website and marketing. Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief, handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. And Catherine Campbell keeps the engines running behind the scenes. Tune in next month for more stories, conversations, and music from the people who shape what we consume right here on the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour from WPVM.